Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. Hello everyone and welcome back to British Murders. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the ninth episode of season three. Last week I debuted a new segment of the show named simply Dad Facts in which I randomly chose a card containing a random fact out of a pack that every dad should apparently know. As a reminder, my toddler bought me this a while back and I only read through them once so naturally I've forgotten them all. You might not be able to pick up the sort of name of the pack on the YouTube video because it messed with the green screen last week for some reason, but it simply says, facts every dad should know. If anyone wants to make a jingle for this section, please feel free. You can send it to me on email, britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com, and I'll make sure to use it in an episode so that you know which part of the show is coming up first. Okay, here we go. So the fact from last week, which was to charge your phone whilst in airplane mode to make it charge faster, that's been taken out of the pack, naturally. I didn't want to leave it in there and shuffle it again because that would just be sod's law that it would appear this week. I'm going to do my patented shuffle again. Someone (laughs) came on the comments and said, I had to come and see you shuffling because obviously it's a basic bit shuffling. I can do it a little bit better, but probably not mid-air. You know the one where you cut it and you separate the two piles like that and then you do the springy thing? I'm not selling it for the audio only, guys, but if you're a card guy, a poker player, a magician, you know what I'm talking about. But they're shuffled, all right? Let's pick a dad fact for this week. Start things off. Here we go. <clears throat> In South Africa, it is legal to attach small flamethrowers to the swords of your car to defend against carjackers. As soon as I saw the first words were in South Africa, I had to go into my South African accent just by habit. I promise I've not read this before. I read it in a normal voice. Not that South Africa is abnormal, 
my normal voice, should I say. I said, in South Africa, it is legal to attach small flamethrowers to the sides of your car to defend against carjackers. So many questions. First of all, how relevant is this? I don't know when this was made. 2019. Okay, so a couple of years ago. Is that right? Any of my fans in South Africa? It's legal to attach small flamethrowers to the... Where would you acquire a small flamethrower from? What? I love how it's specific. Only small flamethrowers, not big or medium ones, just the small ones. To the sides of your car. That's like some Terminator shit, that. Right, another one of them next week. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm so happy it came out in South Africa. I could show you my accent then. Do you want to see more accents in my show? I know it's a true crime podcast and dad facts fitting perfectly with the theme, but I do have a little bit of a gift, I guess, for accents if you want to hear more. Check out my Robert Maudsley episode for my Liverpool accent. Sounds about three foot tall. But yeah, that's another week of dad facts. Someone send me a jingle for that. If you've got an idea for a new segment as well, let us know. But maybe just this one. <laughs> if you think this is shit, as always, just let me know. But I've got quite good feedback off that. I'm trying to lighten the mood because this is quite a morbid story, this one. Now, you're actually going to get two stories on this episode of British Murders. But it's not two full episodes in one. It's not mega long. You can probably see from the time it's not mega long. Um, but there is logic behind my madness for this one. So I'm going to give you a little insight into how I plan the episodes I'm going to cover each week. I have a Google Sheet document with all my episodes on it as I'm far too cheap to pay for Microsoft Excel. I actually prefer Google Sheets and it works in exactly the same way, but that's a different story. So at the start of each season, it's 10 episodes a season, as you know, and I sort of plan the cases I'm going to cover ahead of time. That's about as far as the organization goes now. And for this episode, I was originally going to cover the case of I'll try to say his name. His nickname is The Wolfman. That's the easy part. It's Michael Del Marco Lupo. Now, I'm saying that in the most Yorkshire way ever, but Italian geezer. But when it came to researching the case, there was just nowhere near enough information available for me to research it sufficiently. I already waffle on and bulk out my episodes with filler enough as it is, but that case would have been ridiculous. So instead, I opted to change my case at the last minute on the back of a case suggestion received via email. I've only ever received two case requests so far via email, so if you want to reach out to me that way, I do read all my emails. Sometimes a lot of the social medias, I try and catch up as best I can, but sometimes I don't always see them. If you email me, it's that rare. I'm like, oh, wow, I've got an email. Better read this. But this came from Katie Morris, who all the way over in New Zealand, and it's mad how far this show reaches. If someone in South Africa's watching, it's mad enough, but New Zealand's literally the other side of the world. But like me, Katie is from Yorkshire and suggested the case of David James Harker. Therefore, this episode will focus on that case, but I'd still like to give you a very brief rundown of the Michael Lupo case, as you may find it interesting. His name is a dead giveaway, and I briefly said it earlier, but he was an Italian-born man. This is Michael Lupo, not David Harker, and he committed his crimes in the UK. So technically, he's not a British murderer, but I have covered non-British murderers before because they commit their crimes in Britain. That's how this would have kind of fit my criteria, I guess. Now, the nickname Wolfman isn't because he was some mad werewolf who used to turn all hairy when the full moon came out. 
Basically, his surname, Lupo, L-U-P-O, means wolf in Italian. It's literally his last name. That's why he was called the Wolfman. He used to own a fashion boutique in London, and as far as I could tell, he was openly gay. It all went wrong for Michael when he caught the HIV virus from another gay man in 1985. Now, as a result of that, Michael not only became severely ill, but he also developed an extremely ironic hatred for gay men. In early 1986, he killed four men after meeting them in some of London's gay bars. He was then arrested on May 18th, 1986 and handed four life sentences for the four killings and the following July of 1987 after pleading guilty to all charges. Lupo ended up dying in the hospital wing of Franklin Prison, which is in County Durham, on February 12th, 1995. His cause of death was AIDS. A prison hospital official said Lupo had been ill for a long time and we had all been expecting him to die. As you can see, that's a wild story, but from what I've just told you there, it covered, what, 10 short paragraphs? That's all I could find on the case. It would have been an absolute waffle masterclass if I'd been able to convert those 179 words, yes, I counted them, into four or 5,000 words, which is roughly what a script is for this show. But let us now turn our attention to David James Harker, the actual subject of this episode. There is just a link I've noticed there, actually, because Lupo died in Franklin Prison, which was in County Durham. Now, this episode is set in Darlington, in County Durham. Didn't notice that when I wrote my script. Is that a link? A genuine link? We'll pretend it is. Now, with David James Harker, we'll just call him David Harker for sake of ease, the consensus online is that he was born in 1975. One source gave his specific date of birth as November 27th, 1975, but I had a look on some public record websites like Find My Past. Nothing came up when I searched for his name. It came up when I searched for my name, so that proves that it does kind of work, but who knows. He could have had a different surname at birth, for all I know, but... The exact date of his birth is pretty much irrelevant like a lot of the stuff I talk about in my shows. Our story does take place, as I mentioned, in the railway town of Darlington, which is in County Durham, that's in northeast England. Whilst researching the area, as I do every week, I found out that Darlington is in fact the fifth iteration of the town's name. It was first known as Durthington, sometimes Deathington as well, but nothing to do with actually being morbid and killing people. Then it was turned into Durnington, then Durlington, and then Darnton, which means the dirt, and finally Darlington in around 1577. You can really find out some random stuff if you do some searches online. It's home to the world's first steam-powered passenger railway, and is the location of the Head of Steam Railway Museum. If you're into your trains and stuff, then it might be worth visiting Darlington. Don't know what the name is for... Being obsessed with trains, I'm sure, I guess a train spotter, there's probably a more technical term for it. There's a church there called St Cuthbert's Church, and it's said to be one of the most important early English churches in the north of England. It's actually a grade one listed building, which is the highest a building can get, which means it is of exceptional architectural and historic interest. One savage fact I learned about the town was that King James I visited Darlington in 1603 and when he left, he wrote the following. 
Danton, as it was known back then, Danton has a bonny, bonny church with a brooch upon the steeple. But Danton is a mucky, mucky town and mere shame on the people. Imagine that, the king visits your town, everyone is buzzing. You put on a nice spread for him, treat him like, well, a king, only for him to slag the town off once he's left. Fuming. I also realise there, by the way, that it says that that was written on this source in 1603 and referred to Darlington as Darnton. But then before that, I said that Darlington was the name they settled with after Darnton in 1577. When you're researching all this stuff, the sources vary, especially when you're talking four or five hundred years ago. Take it with a pinch of salt. A quick fact about King James I, if you're into your royals and your kings and queens of England history, is that he was also known as King James VI from July 24th, 1567 to March 24th, 1603. Why? Because he was first the King of Scotland. Then he became King James I once the Scottish and English crowns united on March 24th, 1603. Okie dokie, story time now. Maybe I could have turned that Michael Lupo story into a full-blown episode with the way I ramble on. You know by now what I'm like. My friend Bobby off Killer Stories podcast uh, messaged me the other day and she she said, um, how did you manage to waffle on for eight or nine minutes? I said, what do you mean? She said, dude, it's been eight minutes. The story's not even started yet. So sorry about that. <laughs> I'm the guy that's supposed to have no waffle. So David Harker, our David, he wasn't actually born in Darlington. So I've told you all those facts for no reason. Only joking. He was born in the market town of Chester Street, which is also in County Durham. It's about 27 miles north of Darlington. The reason I told you about Darlington is because he basically ended up moving there and that's where all the crimes took place. So there is, again, logic behind the madness. David's early life isn't the most publicised. It's, again, his date of birth isn't even on public record from what I could find. So it makes sense that his early life isn't that publicised. I did find out, though, that he was in and out of trouble quite a lot as a youth in his hometown of Chester Street. And he was also, as many, many murderers are, seriously obsessed with serial killers. And he took every opportunity he could to learn about them. He'd read books, watch movies about the cases. He even, on his mugshot, you'll see on the artwork on the left side of his head, he had the words subhuman tattooed right on his temple. And then on the other side, he had the word disorder tattooed on his head. And, you know, he obviously shaved his head so that you could see it. He even idolised some serial killers with his particular hero of choice being the Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. We'll come back to that point later on in the story. You'll see later why he idolised Jeffrey and how he used that inspiration to commit the crimes he did or tell the tales that he did. David moved to Darlington in February 1995 with aspirations of making it big as a musician if you're wondering what genre, it's one which is close to my heart, heavy metal. His dream soon died though, possibly, I suspect due to his lack of talent, and he spent his days drinking alcohol in the local parks after receiving his unemployment benefit, or gyro. Unemployment and alcoholism was rife at the time in Darlington, though I, I can't speak as to whether it's like that now still. If anyone lives there, then please reach out, I'd love to know what it's like. Again. They tell you so much stuff online and you kind of take it as fact when I don't live there, so I don't know. David's liquor of choice was White Star, 
a strong white cider which comes in at an impressively strong 7.5% ABV. He hung around with a group of kids, and I use that term literally as they were all significantly younger than David, and he always made it his mission to be the centre of attention everywhere he went. The impressionable youngsters all sort of looked up to David as he was much older than them, and he would often stay at their houses just on the sofa. He was basically homeless and resorted to sofa surfing. That being said, he did chores around the house as he stayed, he paid his way in that sense, and eventually he found love and moved into a flat on Harewood Grove with his new girlfriend. The relationship only lasted a year though, and a devastated David turned to the bottle once more as a result. He'd literally sit in the park and drink, drink, drink. I wonder if he had three different flavours of crisps. His mind was slowly starting to reveal its darker side as he used to tell outlandish stories to the group of kids he called his friends. Referring to himself sometimes as Devil Man, David would sometimes stand on a park bench in front of them all and yell, I'm on a rotten hell and so is everyone else because I am Devil Man. Out of ten, accent? That one's low, I think. He'd even go so far as to tell the kids he planned to take them down a dark and secluded alleyway and kill them. He said it in different voices though, so the kids just felt like he was having a bit of a laugh and attempted to wind them up. He'd make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark, and he'd often accuse chestnuts of being lazy. Now, I don't mind some dark humour every now and then, but the whole, I'll kill you, in a funny voice thing, it's just a bit weird, isn't it? A 20 odd year old man, referring to himself as Devil Man, and telling teenagers he wants to murder them in an alleyway. He's probably not the sort of person you want your kids hanging around with on an evening, I'll be honest. I have a bit of a theory about the name Devilman, by the way. The reason I know David was a heavy metal fan will become clear shortly, but in my opinion he got the name Devilman from a song named Supercharger Heaven by White Zombie. That was Rob Zombie's band prior to him starting his solo career, if you didn't know. Released in 1995 on the band's last album, Astro Creep 2000, the song's chorus features the name Devilman six times. Basically says, Devilman, Devilman, something, Devilman, I'm not going to sing it. But I instantly thought of that song when I found out he referred to himself as Devilman. Fun drinking game, take a shot every time I say Devilman. Apparently there's also a series of Japanese manga comics from the early 1970s featuring a character called Devilman, take a shot, which is who Rob Zombie is referring to in Supercharger Heaven. But that's enough about David for the time being. Let me now introduce you to Julie Paterson. Julie was a mother of three in her early 30s who didn't have the most ideal of childhoods. When researching Julie's background, I discovered that she had been the victim of several, quote, childhood tragedies, though the detail of said tragedies was non-existent. Likely as a direct result of her traumatic childhood, Julie had recently lost the custody of her three children in a court battle with her children's father. She fell into depression and, as a result, became increasingly reliant on both alcohol and Valium. Julie moved to Darlington and it wasn't long before she met an individual by the name of Alan Taylor. Alan was described as being pretty quiet. He enjoyed his solitude and the term loner has even been thrown out there when his name pops up. The couple were an item for around three years and they had a child together. The story starts to descend slowly into the realm of the bizarre from this point on. 
After Julie gave birth, the family of three moved to Hastings in East Sussex. I double-checked to see if there was a Hastings near County Durham, but I found nothing. If there is, let me know. If not, though, that means the couple moved 300-plus miles south to the southern seaside town, close to where the infamous 1066 Battle of Hastings took place. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into the whole what the Battle of Hastings was at this point. I've done all my history and waffle at the start. Whilst in Hastings, the pair's baby was put up for adoption and it wasn't long before they moved back up to Darlington. Julie kept quiet about the whole situation and it wasn't revealed even to her friends as to why the baby was put up for adoption. It could have been Julie and Alan's choice just as much as it could have been decided by child services. All Julie revealed was that she missed her baby, but that what had happened was for the best. Try and wrap your head around that one. As Julie's depression worsened, her drug and alcohol intake increased. She would regularly disappear from her home for days at a time, only to return, have a quick wash, and pretend like nothing happened. The last of those random walkabouts, as Alan called them, came on April 6, 1998. Julie left the house, and Alan never saw her again. She'd been seen by other people hanging around with the villain of this episode, David Harker. It was only when Julie started to miss some of her weekly appointments that Alan became sufficiently worried enough to contact the police on April 29th, 1998 and file a missing persons report. The last time Julie was seen alive was on April 16th, 1998. The police worked in connection with local newspaper, the Northern Echo, which is based in Darlington. The paper was provided with a photo of Julie and they ran a story on the front page which asked for anyone who may have seen her to get in touch with the police. Miraculously, the plan worked and a witness came forward. The witness rang the police and said that the article jogged his memory and he recalled seeing who he thought was Julie before. He remembered that David Harker had told him a story about Julie which at first he took with a pinch of salt. He recommended the police search a secluded street called Polham Lane. Detective Inspector Ian Phillips was the one sent to search the area on the back of the witness's tip, but before he got there, he'd sent police dog handler David Davis to investigate the scene. Upon arriving at Polham Lane at roughly 2.30am, D.I. Phillips spoke with Davies, who advised there looked to be something worth inspecting in the undergrowth. D.I. Phillips then claims to have found a Hessian sack on the ground which was omitting a pungent odour. The lady who lived in the cottage on Polham Lane said the sack had been there for a few weeks and that it was just a dead dog. As the hours went by, more sunlight fell onto Polham Lane. It was only then that D.I. Phillips stated he could make out the shoulder blades of a human being. It's worth noting here that David Davis, the dog handler, claims the events unfolded slightly differently. In February 2008, a comment was left on Murder UK's article regarding this case, in which Davis said, CID didn't find Julie's torso, I did. I was on duty as night shift police dog handler. I was sent to search areas in Darlington for Julie, a missing person. My police dog Tyler, a German shepherd, located her body. I notified supervision, who alerted CID. I, however, was not sure what I had found at that time, as it was simply a human torso. That was a bit better. David Davis actually released a book about his time spent as a police dog handler. He was one for 14 years. It's called Thanks, Inky, Tales of a Police Dog Handler, if anyone's interested. 
the witness who informed the police about Polham Lane wasn't the only one to get in touch. It is thought that around 20 to 25 people were told wild stories by David Harker about him murdering Julie Paterson and chopping her body up into little pieces. Nobody believed him at first. I mean, maybe he said it in a silly voice. But now the police had several people telling them the same story about the same suspect and the same victim. Police managed to track David down to a bail hospital which is where he was living at the time. He was living there as he was recently in court in connection with a very violent and offensive robbery that had taken place. When he was brought into custody, he was interviewed by D.I. Ian Watson and D.C. David Ripley. They said that he was more than happy to tell them his version of events, though he denied knowing anyone by the name of Julie at first. He instead said that he had met a lady named Roxanne. The two officers just sat there and let him talk. Eventually, David confessed to hearing voices in his head that controlled his actions. They told him what to do and he submissively obeyed. Whilst officers Watson and Ripley listened to David's fantastical tales, a team of forensic experts made their way to 6A Harewood Grove, his flat. There were clear signs that some form of foul play had taken place there. There were blood trails on the carpet, a pool of blood was found in the corner of one room, Julie's trainers were placed on a shelf in the kitchen. They even found a pair of Julie's tracksuit bottoms. Both the trainers and the tracksuit bottoms were said to match the description of what Julie was wearing when she was last seen. It was therefore clear that Julie had been at David's flat and the officers had to prepare themselves for the worst. The body found in the Hessian sack belonged to Julie Paterson. When I said earlier that D.I. Phillips saw human shoulder blades within the Hessian sack, I failed to mention that that was essentially all he saw. Only Julie's torso was within the sack. Her head, arms and legs were all missing. When the investigating officers were made aware of the findings at David's flat, their questioning tactics changed slightly, though David vehemently denied murdering Julia. He also refused to tell them where her missing limbs and head were. The issue was that David had told those 20 to 25 people varying accounts as to where he'd hidden parts of Julia's body. He told some people that he'd put Julia's head down a drain. He told others he'd thrown the rest of the body in the River Skern, which runs through the centre of Darlington. Others were told that David had put Julie's arms and legs in a bin bag and that they were collected along with everyone else's household waste. The Northern Echo again got involved and asked the local community to check their bins. Can you imagine being told by the local newspaper to check your own bins in the hope that you may discover the missing head and or limbs of a recently murdered member of the community. What an incredibly morbid thing to do. A massive search took place in the local parks, ponds, drains and even sewers. The search then extended to the Coxhoe Household Waste Disposal Centre, which is one of the largest landfill sites in Europe. 50 officers were handed the task of searching the Mammoth Waste Site and it is thought that they looked through around 20,000 tonnes of rubbish over a three-week period they found nothing. After that, the search was called off as it seemed to be a lost cause. I've seen some images of this waste centre by the way, it is ginormous. There's no way on earth with 
garbage coming in all the time from all the households in the local area. There's just no way. You could have had 50,000 people searching there. They probably still wouldn't have found anything. One source I found stated that parts of Julie's body were found in a bin liner in a hedge somewhere in Darlington's town centre, but that directly contradicts what I've just said. From what I could gather from, well, the police officers who worked the case and what I found online, only Julie's torso was found. All the limbs and her head were never found. And the only part, therefore, of her body that was buried when a funeral took place on July 24th, 1998, was her torso. If we can briefly go back inside David's apartment, I'll explain to you why I know he was a heavy metal fan, and therefore why I believe my theory about why he called himself Devilman, take a shot, is true. There were random writings on the wall that police believed to be poems. The first one said, I have lost the will to live, nothing more for me to give. As soon as I read that, I knew there were lyrics from Metallica's 1984 power ballad, Fade to Black. I'm a Metallica fan, people know that. I'm wearing one of their jerseys right now. Another poem, if you want to call it that, read, Born again with snake's eyes, becoming God's eyes. Now those are lyrics from Pantera's 1994 song, Becoming. David Harker was obsessed with the word becoming, or maybe he was just obsessed with the song, it is bloody good, as a knife was found in the garage with the word becoming written on it, and the knife was found next to a blood-stained blanket in a plastic sack. David Harker was then formally charged with the murder of Julie Paterson. In the lead-up to the trial, David's solicitor requested the transfer of his client from prison to a psychiatric hospital so that his mental health could be assessed. He was subsequently transferred to Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside for said assessments. Feeling a touch more comfortable, David once again opened up about what he had done to Julie Paterson. It was as if he was back with his friends telling them what they believed to be tall tales. David explained to hospital psychiatrists that he met Julie in a pub one night, took her back to his flat in Darlington and strangled her to death. He then claimed to have cut off some flesh from Julie's thigh, fried it in garlic butter and ate it with pasta. David also claimed to be a necrophiliac and told psychiatrists how he had sex with Julie's corpse before wiping it down with bleach and sawing off the head and limbs. His final claim was that he'd murdered two other people. Now apart from getting rid of the head and the limbs of Julie's body, none of the aforementioned claims are thought to be true, rather they're just believed to be figments of David's very vivid imagination. He tended to tell the plot of horror movies such as The Silence of the Lambs, and of serial killers such as Jeffrey Dahmer and Ed Gein, while pretending he committed the same crimes as them. An example was when David claimed to have made a new face mask out of the skin of his victims. Victims plural, when we know he killed one person. Much like Ed Gein did with the bodies he exhumed during his time as a body snatcher. The Jeffrey Dahmer link is the alleged cannibalism, as well as necrophilia, which is what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Now David always did get a kick out of trying to shock people, a trait which is actually linked to psychopathic disorders. The Northern Echo then started receiving letters from David, who would make claims about his childhood which, according to his family, again, simply weren't true. All of the letters were signed off as becoming, there's that word again, and in his fifth and final letter to the newspaper, David wrote, I'm not evil, but I am a monster. The detectives that questioned me were too stupid to realise what I was. 
You never told me if you like riddles, but I'll tell you one anyway. The title for the riddle is Churchill. I own a bank, but have no money. I have falls, but keep going. I have a mouth, but do not eat. I have a bed, but do not sleep. I have a beginning, but do not end. What am I? I do enjoy a good riddle as much as I enjoy a good accent, and I'm pretty sure the answer to that riddle is a river. River bed, river mouth, river falls, river bank. Beginning of a river, but no end? I think it's river. Now that is a huge clue as to where he likely dumped Julie's missing body parts into the river Skern. David had EEG scans on his brain to see if there was any unusual activity. An EEG, or electroencephalogram, is a test that detects electrical activity in your brain using small metal electrodes attached to your scalp. Nothing came of the tests, everything looked normal. It was therefore agreed that David was in full control of his actions, though his total lack of remorse showed an absence of conscience, which put him in the top 4% of psychopaths in Britain. When the trial eventually came round in early 1999, prosecutor Paul Worsley claimed that David was obsessed with serial killers and avidly read any book or viewed any programme on the subject. It was also brought to light that David regularly told his young friends that he had ambitions of becoming Britain's most notorious serial killer. So many cases involve individuals who dream to be murderers, I find it so bizarre. What's wrong with, say, being the world's most prolific stamp collector or owning the largest collection of Malibu Stacey dolls and accessories? Superintendent Barry Pert, who was the case's lead investigator, said he was sure that David killed Julie for pleasure. He said, Harker has told friends and psychiatrists at Ashworth Hospital that he killed her. He also said he'd eaten part of a thigh, fried it and eaten it with pasta and cheese. He has told over 25 people what he has done, but because of the grisly nature of what he was saying, they did not believe him. They thought he was fantasising, but unfortunately he was not. She was vulnerable and childlike, and Harker took advantage of that. Harker has never helped us with our inquiries at all. But he has spoken to other people, and we believe that she was murdered by strangulation in his flat in Darlington. Three sites in that flat showed signs of dismemberment having taken place. Please don't think I'm trying to make light of what he's saying there, because it's fucking brutal. But I'm assuming he was from the northeast. David Harker pleaded guilty at Teesside Crown Court to the manslaughter of Julie Paterson, but on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Bennett accepted that plea and recommended David serve a minimum term of 14 years in prison before being considered for parole. What do you make of that sentence? Do you feel he had a legit claim of diminished responsibility? Let me know in the comments or social media because it's a tough one. It could go either way. Judge Bennett said in his closing statement, You killed her in the most terrible circumstances and dismembered her body. You glorified in her death and the manner of her death. I have no doubt that given the slightest opportunity, you will kill again. Judge Bennett then told David he was an evil and extremely dangerous person, to which David replied, Thank you. Remember at the start of the episode I said you were getting two stories? Well, add another one to it, because here is your third story in one episode. This one is actually linked to David Harker, not just by the whole County Durham thing. It's linked to his story. Remember Alan Taylor, 
Julie's loner boyfriend whom she had a child with but then they put up for adoption in Hastings. He found life really difficult after Julie was killed and alcohol was his drug of choice. In October 2006, Alan was out drinking one night with a friend of his named John Morrison. In the early hours of the following morning, Alan strangled John to death with his belt after first attempting to do so using his bare hands. He then put a duvet over John's body and claims to have said a prayer for him before leaving the flat, buying more alcohol and calling the police. It was five hours after the murder when Alan phoned 999. He said, I'm very sorry to say, but I've just killed someone. You might think, why on earth did he do that? I mean the killing someone part, not the whole turning himself in part. When Alan was arrested, he told them exactly why he'd killed his friend. Accent's coming back, so here's a warning. He said, I want Harker next. It's unfinished business. I hope to go to Wakefield. I want Harker next. Bastard Harker. I want him as well. Unfinished business. Like David, Alan pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He said his thinking was impaired at the time of the killing as a result of his alcoholism, as well as the post-traumatic stress disorder he claimed to have suffered since Julie's murder. Alan Taylor, unlike David Harker, was convicted of murder after a five-day trial. He was handed a life sentence with a minimum term to serve of 13 years. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Simon said in his closing statement, You've been found guilty of the murder of John Morrison, whom the evidence has shown was a gentle man. He met a violent death at your hands, and it's plain that drink played an important part in this. Alan Taylor took his own life in June 2007 at Home House Prison in Stockton. As far as I'm aware, David Harker is still being held at Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. And that was the story of British murderer David Harker, with sub-stories featuring British murderer Alan Taylor and Italian murderer Michael Lupo. I hope you enjoyed this unique episode. It wasn't my intention to cover three cases in a single one, but sometimes the research leads you down places you don't expect to be. It's a bit like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, I'll be honest. There's so many rabbit holes you go down. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on these cases. If you are interested in hearing more about the David Harker case, I highly recommend you watch the Channel 5 documentary Cannibal Killer, which aired on November 19th, 2007. It was a massive help with regards to my research. Encourage you all to give it a watch. It was good. And for more on British murders, please check out all my social medias. My merchandise is available at Teespring. You can support me on Patreon and buy me a coffee. The email again is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. Keep those case suggestions coming through, please. You can contact me on social media if you'd prefer as well. And if you want to give the show a review, you can do that on iTunes or Podchaser. And that does it for another episode of British Murders. Just a quick heads up that next week is going to be a film review episode. I'm away next week, so I haven't had time to write and research and prepare, record, edit, upload... Um, episode 10 of season 3 but this episode I recorded quite a while back now it's about the film Us from 2019 which was directed by Jordan Peele it's my good friend Brett Curtis that joins me on the episode he's an aspiring British actor we get quite deep into the film we, when we talk about films together we get sort of really into the subtext and the you know the direction we're quite uh, yeah, quite pompous about it really when we're talking about films you know we're filmies you know film buffs yeah 
We think we're critics, but we're not. But it'll, it's still a good episode, basically. If you're interested, you've seen the film, check it out. Week after that will be the finale of season three. After that's a two-part special. Then there's a load of interim stuff while I prepare for season four. You know the drill by now. But for now, this was season three, episode nine. And I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks again so much for listening or watching. And until next time, cheerio.